When they're done with that, they come out. Then we describe the two tasks for them, and their job is to try to complete the task. The first task required subjects to sift sand from a jar also containing water and black dye. Various items were available to help complete this task. We set it up so that the only object they could use to successfully achieve the goal of sifting the sand out was a little American flag. And so what they would have to do is secure the American flag with a rubber band on a, an empty jar and then pour the black dye through the American flag, which of course ruins the American flag. For the second task, subjects were asked to hang a crucifix on the study room wall. Again, various items were available to help them do so. In order to do that, the only object they could use to successfully hammer the nail into the wall so they could hang up the crucifix was the crucifix itself. Those students who had received death reminders tried more alternative ways to complete their tasks. They were more apprehensive to desecrate their most cherished cultural icons and took twice as long as those who were not reminded of their death prior to the experiment. Now that the terror management team had established that changes in behavior occurred when people thought about their own death, they were prepared to conduct what was to become their most striking and ominous study. If it could be determined that thinking of death caused behavior patterns to change, could it not also be determined that these behaviors might in fact be aggressive toward other individuals? The problem with measuring any type of aggressive behavior in a laboratory situation is the ethical concerns that it brings up. Um, we can't exactly have people punching one another, hitting, shooting, stabbing, um, that's frowned on ethically. So what we did was we devised a measure where we could safely assess uh, intent to harm another person. And we did that by using hot sauce. You know, Becker argued, and we got into this partly because we thought this can help explain real-world prejudice and aggression against different others. But it was inspired by real incidents in which people have used hot sauce to physically attack other people. There was a case where a cook was, was angry at police and spiked a couple of cops' food with hot sauce. More significant and less humorous, uh, there are numerous cases in which parents have used hot sauce to punish their children, which is a form of child abuse. But in the lab, what we thought we might be able to do is at least get some indication of an intention to hurt someone else simply because you've been reminded of your own death and they're threatening an aspect of your worldview. In this paradigm, the subjects come in and they're told that the study concerns personality and food preferences. Subjects were once again given a set of supposed personality questionnaires. Some included the death reminder and others did not. Then in what subjects were told was an unrelated study. They were asked to allot a variable amount of extremely hot sauce for a participant of dissimilar political background to taste and rate. Those who had received death reminders prescribed more than twice the amount of hot sauce as those who did not receive the death reminders. This has profound implications. These studies show that reminders of death play an influential role in the human psyche and can inspire us to act aggressively. 
While hot sauce itself might seem benign, the implications of these studies are frightening. What happens when the means of aggression is not hot sauce, but rather a gun or another weapon? And what might be the result if the issue at hand was whether or not to provide food aid to a starving country? Would we act differently if their culture posed a threat to our psychological equanimity? Many people function day to day seemingly oblivious to the effect death has upon them. Most would claim that they don't think about death at all. The industrial world has sterilized itself to the point where we hear about death, but rarely see it firsthand. But does this mean that we are immune to the effects of death? When a lot of people hear about this theory for the first time, the initial reaction is, you know, I don't think about death all that much. And if I don't think about death all that much, how could death be playing such an important role in our lives? How could it be affecting me in these powerful ways? Or how could it affect ongoing behavior when I almost never think about death? People do think about death and are reminded of death quite commonly. Any major city newspaper has got a murder story pretty much every day. If you watch the news, if you watch television, you see stories of murder and death pretty consistently. So reminders of death are actually quite common. The other point is that uh, we do agree that, for the, that we don't think about death all that much consciously in our daily lives. You know, the essence of Freud's ideas about the nature of the psychological apparatus is that uh, most psychological activity is quite unconscious. We repress our concerns about death and our thoughts of death, but it's underneath. It's outside of consciousness. Now, how do you get at that? That sounds like you know, this is sort of untestable. It's not untestable. Uh, psychologists have recently developed technology to present material to people without their awareness that they're being exposed to the material. And we call this subliminal priming. Utilizing this method, the terror management team spearheaded by Jamie Arndt at the University of Missouri at Columbia developed what they call the subliminal death prime. Uh, we had folks come and stare at a computer screen and do what they call a lexical decision task. It's just words are flashed on a screen and people are supposed to look at them and push a button if they're similar. So if you, know, if you see like shoes and pants, those are similar items. And if you see like taco and sneaker, you know, those are dissimilar items. But really that's just an excuse to get them to look at the screen because in between those words, very rapidly at like 21 milliseconds are either flash the word death or the word field because those words have the same number of letters and the same frequency of occurrence in the English language and in fact when you do that nobody knows that it's happened that's what makes these studies amazing if we show people afterwards if we say hey we flashed some stuff that you couldn't see here's four words can you tell us which one was flashed uh, people cannot pick out the one that they've seen reliably. So we know that it's quite, quote, unconscious, and yet they show the same hostility towards someone who is different than themselves and the same affection towards someone who's similar when we ask them to explicitly ponder their own demise. Many cultures have different methods for dealing with and examining death. Exploring death denial offers just one example but it is applicable cross-culturally. 
These results have been replicated in tests throughout the world, implying that fear of death is most likely a universal influence, regardless of the specifics of various cultures or customs. I think these ideas about death and symbolic immortality, about denial of death in Becker's work, extend cross-culturally. They're um, all primal ideas and all primal human experiences are universal. World events can sometimes serve as a window through which we can confirm the veracity of these ideas. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. I saw the, the first tower kind of smoking and I saw the second plane maneuver around behind and, and hit the second tower. My first reaction, I think like a lot of people, was this, what is this? This can't be real. Uh, when I, then when I got past that, that this is actually happening, um, my first response was anger. I was angry. I, I'm a New Yorker. I'm from New York. I, I did think of Pearl Harbor, and uh, but I thought that we had denial of death in the sky over Manhattan. There's no question that what's happening there is a, is an, a clash of worldviews. I think that, that what we've seen in response to those attacks is a lot of anxiety and a lot of anger. First of all, it reminds us of our mortality. We usually we keep that buried day to day in the symbolic system, and this kind of brought it to the fore. The other threat is the threat to our culture. Okay, that what what allows us to you know walk around day to day feeling okay is that we're Americans and we're part of this strong, powerful, and good nation, and that that's a big part of what protects us from our mortality concerns. And now that's being threatened. Okay, by by not only killing a lot of Americans, but but attacking major symbols of our culture: Pentagon, World Trade Center. Obviously on purpose. The events of September 11, 2001, reminded millions of people of their mortality in very direct ways. In the span of only a few hours, the cultural worldview collectively maintained by the United States was agonizingly damaged. The ripple effect spread throughout the world.
Just like a terror management theory experiment carried out on an enormous scale, all the conditions were in place for the subjects to first reinforce their shared cultural worldview. In the United States, examples of this became quickly apparent. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. I'm just going out here to support my country and let everybody know this is one nation under God. How long have you been out here? Since the planes crashed into the World Trade Center Tuesday. We show our strength, right? We buy American flags. American flags are going off, are off the racks. Also, you see Christians and religious people are turning to their religion. As terror management theory would have predicted in a laboratory setting, what was to follow would be an aggressive reaction against the threatening other. I think we should go over there and kick ass and take names later. Near Tucson, uh, we saw a, a man killed because he was wearing a turban. And in fact, he was, he was from India and he was a Sikh. Uh, he had absolutely nothing to do with this. Some angry American killed him. And it's frustrating, right? Because you can't find Osama bin Laden. He's been vilified. He is the evil. He's who we want to get retribution from, but he's hard to get at. So you see the, the scapegoating and the overgeneralization. That urge for revenge, that urge to be, to be protected and call on our superior forces to, you know, go and annihilate and so forth, that's, those are very strong emotions, and I, and I don't think we should discount them but it doesn't mean that that should be the basis on which we act. We are confronting something that we don't know how to deal with. We're confronting people who use their death against us. Somebody who says, there's something more important than my life is unstoppable. Once we have moved that struggle for survival beyond the physical level to the symbolic level, I'm willing to give up my life, lots and lots of life to make a heroic sacrifice to see my immortality system prevail. Apocalyptic violence. That really means violence in the service of not just achieving a political goal. There may be political goals, but beyond any political goal is a more amorphous sense of bringing an end to the present world because it is too corrupt. And that can be justified because one is doing it in the service of a spiritually pure world. From the terror management theory research, we see why Ernest Becker's works have been called a science of evil. His ideas have given us a means by which we can scientifically examine the root causes of human aggression and violence. Becker writes that humans cause evil by wanting to triumph over evil in the quest for immortality. Our most oppressive and violent and brutal behaviors, uh, Becker says, are responses to our death anxiety. The core problem 
uh, from this perspective is that we've got to invest in these worldviews and then we've got to defend them. And in defending them, we often end up hurting others. The groups of people that we have to make other, to make victims, to make not truly human, the ways we have to humiliate or brutalize them, torment them, destroy them. Hitler was very big on that, that the Jews are animals and the gypsies are animals. You know, and he compared them to vermin. But we Aryans, we're not. We're the true humans and, and we're going to live on in greatness. And he was unfortunately able to sell that message. The most brutal and primitive style of coping with death is to dream that you can master it by killing or destroying other people. It is an opportunity to confront death and to escape it while inflicting it on someone else. Five people don't make it in this world. It's just, it's the, it can either be the victimizer or the victim. And I choose to be the victimizer. We commit the greatest evil by trying to escape from evil, by trying to create a paradise on earth. We are literally looking for things to label evil so that once we've done that, we can fight them. You know, even in the Cold War, Ronald Reagan referred to uh, Russia as the evil empire. And in Iran, they referred to us as the great Satan. Today, our nation saw evil. We will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. We demonize folks uh, and we see them as the all-encompassing repositories of evil, the removal of which would make life on earth as it is in heaven. So more people have been killed in the name of God and country than by all the serial murderers Jeffrey Dahmer types put together is just a drop in the bucket compared to how much killing has gone on out of loyalty, patriotism, love for God and country. The toll in human lives is almost too staggering to consider. Violence seems to be an inherent part of who we are. Our propensity to destroy others and the world around us begs the question. Are we a viable form of life? We are the inheritors now of, of a species who has made a habit of warfare. They give me a gun. And he said, that's the enemy over there. And if you don't shoot them, they're going to shoot you. Our unit basically was a search and destroy unit. Not all units have that clear-cut order. Ours was very simple. Search and destroy. I remember a uh, sergeant telling me, well, when you get over there, you're going to be able to kill a lot of you come. Now, you got to wonder because nobody ever used that word, <laughs> kill. 
how gung ho you are. It's still hard to kill that that first person. I was on the ground hiding when he came up on us, and I stood up and shot him. Look in his eye, never forget. And he went down. Uh, I got sick that first time. economic, political, and geographic boundaries, death anxiety is a psychological common denominator. No one is immune. Cross-culturally and internationally, we see the effects and reactions that this anxiety brings. Yet the prognosis for our future is not altogether bleak. If death is unavoidable, how are we to remedy the situation in which we find ourselves? questions are more common than the answers. Is the medical field offering any hope? Is there any possibility that we will someday eliminate death? And what will this mean for our world? Will we rid ourselves of fear if we rid ourselves of death? Just make death go away. You know, the kind of cryogenic thing. Let's let's make death just disappear. This idea that you can freeze-dry yourself and be reconstituted like a frozen burrito at some point, some vaguely unspecified future, uh, I just find highly unfortunate. Not only would it not remove our anxiety about death, but it might make it even worse. If you are 10 years old and you slip and fall down a mountain, that's tragic because you're losing like 60 years of your life. But what if you expected to live for 500,000 years and you fell down a mountain? That would be even more grotesque. So you might be able to banish death, but you could never banish chance. And to the extent that stuff happens, that's just not going to work. Are we doomed to repress our death anxiety and suffer the consequences of our death denial? Can we face death head on and at the same time avoid creating what can often be destructive illusions of immortality? We're animals and we're on this hunk of earth hurtling through space. There's no meaning to life. There's no purpose. It's completely absurd and pointless. And we're just creatures crawling around trying to have sex and eat and have shelter. And the only thing for sure is that we're going to decay and die, and just as our ancestors did, and just as our progeny are going to. And that's it. Does that sound? Does that sound good? Doesn't sound too good. Let's just banish illusion, and let's just see things as they are. That's also quaint, but no can do because the very act of perception 
is ultimately an interpretive affair. We used to think that people perceive like cameras or Xerox machines. Illusions are the explanations we come up with to give meaning to our own experience. It doesn't mean we're lying. It doesn't mean we've made a big mistake. We can't just look at the world and know what's going on. Tell the difference between good and evil. See what is valuable and not valuable. We are creating illusions all the time. We don't just use illusions to hide the facts from us. We sometimes use them to, to better explore the facts. Yes, we live in a world of illusion, constructed reality, and one in which we continually search for meaning. But these constructs can be nurturing and life-sustaining, minimizing suffering while promoting individual freedom, dignity, and hope. They don't have to be destructive. A life-sustaining illusion can soothe the empirical realities of life and death, but at the same time must provide the courage to resist oppressing or taking the lives of others to justify itself. How can we bring ourselves, wherever in the world we might be, to a place where through our actions and constructs, we practice tolerance and kindness, and possibly reach a point of acceptance or even respect, recognizing that these are not signs of weakness and despair, but rather manifestations of strength and resolution. We need to examine the kinds of illusions that we're pursuing. The things that, that our culture has defined as heroic that we find meaningful. Psychologically speaking, we don't have a set of values in place that renders it acceptable to just be a person of integrity. If you're not rich, if you're not famous, if you're not thinner than a piece of linguine and permanently young, uh, then you've got a problem here. A good culture provides opportunities for people to feel good about themselves. Uh, and But finally, that it does that without unduly harming other people, either outside or inside of the culture itself. Another thing that could be done is to think about the development of cultural constructions that have more direct and realistic uh, confrontations with mortality. Uh, it's, it's not unknown to human history, as you know. People are afraid to die. We're all afraid to die. Uh, but there's two ways to go with that. One way I think we can see quite clearly in Buddhism, but we find it in all the great religions, is to do something with that fear of death, to use that, not to repress it, but to bring it to consciousness and to use that as a way of helping us live more, more intensely. Usually we think of life and death as opposites. You know, either you're alive or you're dead. But from this point of view, you can see that they're more like the two sides of a single hand. Heidegger's words, we are being toward death. Or Don Juan would say, keep death on your left shoulder. Uh, keep reminding yourself, or the medieval monks would have even a skull on their on their writing desk, or in or in Tibet and those areas you you their skull cups that you drink out of this to remind you of your mortality. It reminds you of death so that it doesn't go into into the thing of, of unconscious denial. I think we get in trouble culturally from unconscious denial of death, not from conscious efforts to, to, uh, to position ourselves uh, against death.
puppies is a, you know, it was something I, as a kid I always wanted to be. It was just, a, it was a dream. It was a fantasy. It, it's kind of an anomaly. I wrote 14 books, and uh, neither Harvard nor Princeton, where I both had advanced degrees, took any, any uh, notice of me until I could hang upside down. It's, <laughs> it's many things. It's a joy. It's a discipline. Uh, I also understand, having read Becker, that there's a place where it's my defense. Uh, if not against uh, death, uh, it's against old age. And so if this is my, this is a form of denial for me. I'll, I'll admit it, you know. I mean, I'm 70 and, and uh, I'm going to, I'm not going gentle into that good night. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep denying it as long as possible, you know. But I, you know, I don't, I think it's a, I think it's a healthy enough thing. I think there's a, a relationship between the amount of death anxiety or death panic it may be for some people uh, and the degree of unlived life inside of them. If you have a sense that you haven't really lived, that you haven't really done what you could do in life, there's a terror of dying before you've ever really lived. Well, the surgery was um, not without some complications, but I think I've recovered very well from it. Although my illness is classified as incurable, I prefer to think of myself as incurably alive. And I think the real difference between me and other people is that I no longer have the luxury to procrastinate my life away anymore. I mean, through tremendous personal growth and, and looking at my life, um, I've been able to overcome some great odds. I think I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. In the words of Jean-Paul Sartre, everything has been figured out except how to live. So perhaps the better question is not what are we to do with death, but what are we to do with life? Why if we can enjoy life with a fullness like no other organism, do we often falter? Life exists in individual moments, and it is up to us to make sure that those moments are vital, interconnected, and vast that our process of living, of contributing to the collective experience of life is embracing, nurturing, and meaningful. To create a masterpiece out of life, a life we would willingly repeat if we had to live it again and again for all of eternity. This is what we can strive for. Now Marcel says that, that hope only begins at the point where all of our calculations fail. So when people want to say, well, we have this kind of immortality or something, that's a prediction. And I think those things get us in trouble. But I think hope is to realize that you know, I didn't come here by my own will, and I won't leave by my own will. So whatever it is that brings me into existence, if I find, if I find existence um, good, I have to say, it's good. It's good. And it has to be good even in spite of my death. You know, I believe Paul Tillich had it right. Paul Tillich says you don't, you don't conquer the anxiety about dying. Uh, you meet it with courage.
Now, I can't resist following that with another echo from an Unwelcome Guests episode, which, until I checked it out, I hadn't actually noticed, was another show with material recommended to me by Dave Pierce. So, extra thanks are due. This is from episode 644, called Living Here and Now. Let's have a couple of minutes of wisdom from the author of a Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. This is Professor William Irvin. We all know that friendships can come to an end. You know, sometimes friends quarrel, sometimes friends die. And so the Stoics said, you know, when, when you say goodbye to your friend, one of the things you should do is you should allow the thought just briefly to enter your mind that this might be the last time you see your friend. Um... Why would anybody do that? It seems like such a <laughs> negative thing to do. It's because if you do that, you'll appreciate that friend in a way you won't appreciate him if you think, as most people do, that he'll be there forever. Another thing the Stoics said you should contemplate is your own death. And again, that seems like a terribly negative thing to do, except they claim that by contemplating your own death and by thinking, by realizing fully, that you won't be here forever. If you do that, you will enjoy life so much more intensely than if you imagine, as many people do, that they're going to be around forever. You bring up in this chapter the example of two fathers, one of whom periodically reflects on his daughter's mortality. Take us through this scenario. Yeah, this is a line from the Stoic philosopher uh, Epictetus, who who gives this, this advice, he said, as you're kissing your daughter goodnight at bedtime, you should pause and think to yourself that this might be the last kiss, that she might be gone by tomorrow, by the morning. And when I've had my students read that, they're all just appalled. That's a terrible thing to do with a kid. Now, you're doing it in your own mind. You're not telling the kid, you know, you might die tonight, but you're reflecting on that. The claim is, and I believe this is true because I've done it, uh, the claim is that if you do that, you will value your daughter. If your daughter is around the next day, as she probably will be, you'll appreciate her continued existence. Uh, and compare that to the father who assumes that the kid's always going to be around. That father is unlikely to be attentive. You know, when the kid comes down for breakfast, that father might just continue reading the newspaper. Um, that afternoon, instead of playing with the kid, the father might go golfing. Because you know what? You can always play with the kid tomorrow. The first father, though, the one that actively contemplates the loss of the daughter, is going to take advantage of opportunities to interact. It's going to be a much closer relationship. Well, I recommended it then, and I'm going to recommend it now. 
I've found from my own personal experience that negative visualization technique to be very helpful. I didn't hear the podcast, I just naturally found myself doing it. It's not always in Bangladesh that we do have water coming out of pipes and generally found myself more appreciative of these things. Uh, Let me just take a little bit of time out and say that I appreciate you, the listener, whether you submit material, which is, of course, fantastic, or even if you're just sitting as one of the download statistics, it all encourages me that what I'm doing is helpful. Unwelcome guests is my effort to give what I can in the language of that film, an immortality symbol. I was encouraged to see we've got 2,000 visits to the page since last episode. And, of course, all the volunteers who have been helping me with this radio adaptation, without which I would never attempt such a complex effort as to put Alan Frankovich's great film on Gladio onto the radio. So, now we continue. This is the third part of Alan Frankovich's 1992 film. And again, I shall link to the YouTube where, if you'd rather, you can watch the original. On May the 31st, 1972, the Carabinieri in Petiano received a phone call. I wish to inform you that a car with bullet holes in the windscreen is parked in the road from Pusato Fermata to Savona. Three policemen were lured to a car primed to explode. All three were to die. Vincenzo Vinciguera from Ordine Nuovo speaks from his jail cell. When you were on the right, you were not supposed to attack the state or its representatives. You were supposed to attack civilians, women, children, innocent people from outside the political arena. For one simple reason, to force the Italian public to turn to the state turned to the regime and asked for greater security. This was precisely the role of the right in Italy. It placed itself at the service of the state, which created a strategy aptly called the strategy of tension. In so far as they had to get ordinary people to accept that at any moment over a period of 30 years, from 1960 to the mid-80s, a state of emergency could be declared so people would willingly trade part of their freedom for the security of being able to walk the streets, go on trains, or enter a bank. This is the political logic behind all the bombings. They remain unpunished because the state cannot condemn itself. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. The judges noted in all the cases a certain amount of interference, in some cases very heavy interference, on the part of the services of police security and the organs of the state. Instead of helping the magistrates, they were fiddling the records so that the truth wouldn't come out. 
Il giudice Felice Casson. L'esistenza di strutture clandestine all'interno dei servizi segreti di sicurezza. The clandestine structures inside the Italian secret services first came to light in 1984 as a result of certain revelations. Un detenuto. Vincenzo Vinciguerra, during a trial, disclosed that the structures had links to the CIA and Western secret services. General Gerardo Serraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. Ci furono dei... There were bombers, in particular Vincenzo Vinciguerra, self-confessed perpetrator of the Petiano bombing, who described to Judge Casson in 1984 the structure of Gladio with such precision and in such detailed terms that it could have been the declaration of the Prime Minister Andreotti years later. Vincenzo Vinciguerra. How did I know about these structures? I was part of the Ordine Nuovo, which is nothing other than an organization linked to the Italian secret services. General Gerardo Serraville. The gladiators who were enrolled received certain information, bits of information which increased over time. We didn't tell them everything directly from the start. It was all strictly on a need-to-know basis. We told them what they had to know and nothing about the NATO links. That one of the bombers, never contracted or recruited by Gladio, can describe it in such detail, makes me think that there was in fact a sort of underground system which knew about the arms deposits and the clandestine structures and which acted under cover of an official structure. Senator Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry. For 40 years, everything has been done to keep Gladio secret. It's a miracle that Italy, which is not known for keeping secrets, managed to keep this secret. The Italian stay-behinds were brought to train at a secret base in Capomaraggiù, in Sardinia. Colonel Massimo Pugliese, Counterintelligence, Sardinia. We are a few kilometers south of Alghero in Sardinia. From this hill, one can see the famous base of Polina. This is the complex called the Center for Sabotage Training. Ennio Di Colle, Italian Gladio, 1959-1991. I was at Capo Maraggio for the first time in 1959. I didn't know where. I didn't know where I was because we were transported in planes with blacked out windows. Decimo Galau, a trainer from Capo Maraggio, Gladio Base. They arrived in a disguised plane and were transferred to a disguised coach. They were then dropped off in front of their quarters. 
Then the training will start. Venivano scaricati davanti alla palazzina del loro alloggio e da lì iniziava l'addestramento. Colonel Massimo Pugliese, Counterintelligence, Sardinia. Dipendeva It was under a department called the Office for Research, the R Office. Normally, they train spies and special units. I, as an employee in the counter-espionage section, was under the command of D Office. Both the D and the R offices were under the command of CIFAR, the Italian Secret Services. Decimo Galau. We gave them an idea of the organization. We told them that it was top secret. Their names would not be revealed, and very few would know of its existence. Mark Wyatt, CIA Deputy Chief in Rome, 1962-64. I never attended uh, the stay-behind base in Sardinia at a time when training was actually going on. These were, the times that I visited, it was very much VIP trips. Uh, the Italians are very much for VIP. Everything ran very smoothly. I had the greatest admiration for the men uh, out at the base. For a couple of hours, we showed them how to use explosives. But they never touched them. Our experts were the only ones who would handle these things. General Gerardo Serraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. As soon as I had taken over charge of my section, probably due to my military record, as a commander, I was used to knowing all my men. My initial aim was to meet some of these men, now called gladiators. These men, having been trained for a possible domestic intervention, though this intervention should be anticipated or at least planned for in the event of an imminent invasion so as to prohibit the so-called collaborators of the Warsaw Pact from acting behind the backs of the resistance. Vincenzo Vinciguela Ordine Nuovo never had its own ideology. They called themselves National Socialists. But their boss, Pino Rotti, worked for the armed forces, was an SID, Italian Secret Services, expert and recruited men for these parallel structures. Pino Rauti, head of the neo-fascist group Ordine Nuovo. Communism has changed. Instead of a frontal attack, they have put a war machine in the structures of Western governments. So all the classical anti-communist bodies have not adjusted to this reality. General Paolo Inzarelli. Commander of Gladio, 1974-1986. Some magistrates believe that the explosives that were found in one of the arms caches might have been used in the attack at Peteano. 
l'attentato di Tepean. Padre Giuciano, a parished priest standing in front of his small rural church. A Bisaglia l'ho avuto un pomeriggio. I was forewarned in the afternoon when two journalists from Il Gazzettino asked me if I knew anything about the arms deposits here at the church. Circa qualche deposito di armi qui nella chiesa di Santa Petronilla. They started to dig right in here and found two boxes paid away. Così hanno trovato qui due casse da questa parte. Then the text also said at 30 centimeters from the window. E poi il testo diceva anche a 30 centimeters dalla finestra. E quindi si sono portati qua a 30 Una cassa eh, era particolarmente da loro temuta, la Infatti ha mandato fuori anche il maresciallo e i carabinieri. Sono rimasti solo i due artificieri dentro quando hanno aperto questa cassa. i due mitra. Tutte le armi erano nuove, usate, quindi in perfetto stato di conservazione. Senator Libero Gualtieri. Abbiamo trovato documenti che, che dicono... Regional commanders were told to confuse the magistrates. They were to say the guns came from smugglers or the Germans. Erano armi di contrabbandieri, che erano armi di... Knowing full well, they were Gladio guns. Vincenzo Vinciguera. Dopo l'attentato di Pateano. After the attack at Pateano, a mechanism was put in place which was used in all such cases. A mechanism of cover-up. The Carbonari, the Ministry of the Interior, the Customs and Excise Police. The civilians and military secret services all knew the truth behind the attack that I was responsible in all this within 20 days. So they decided for totally political reasons to cover it up. Paolo Inzarelli, commander of Gladio, 1974 to 1986. Some magistrates believe that the explosives that were found in one of the arms caches might have been used in the attack at Peteano. Referring to the documents I have seen from before my time, there doesn't seem to have been an investigation or a ballistics expert sent for. I know exactly who General Seraville sent to Aresina. An officer of the Carabinieri was simply sent to report on the situation. Senator Libero Gualtieri. From this chance discovery of the arms cache at Orsina, Seravalli and his chief Fortunato, who was head of the section dealing with foreign espionage, took the decision to dismantle all 139 arms caches. They took this decision, informing the head of the secret services. But without, it seems, telling the government or the Americans. General Saravalli was to meet with Howard Stone, chief of the Rome CIA station. General Gerardo Seraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. to 74. 
era venuto perché sollecitato da me. Stone had come over because I asked him to. When I took over command, I noticed the American financing agreed in the bilateral accords. In particular, the shipping of armaments to us had stopped. I didn't understand why, and they wouldn't give me an explanation. So I called this meeting in order to find out why they had stopped sending us the supplies. So, after months of maneuvering on both diplomatic and military fronts, I could finally invite Mr. Stone and Mr. Sednaoui to the base in Sardinia. I said to them, this is our training center, etc. You could help us achieve our full potential, so why cut our aid? If this is your government's position, we will accept it, but you owe us an explanation. I realized that the CIA interests as represented by these officials weren't really concerned with the level we had reached in our training, but rather on the subject of internal control, that is, our level of readiness to counter street disturbances, handling nationwide strikes and any eventual rise of the Communist Party. Senator Libero Gualtieri? When Gladio started, especially in the 1960s, it was very active. The Americans would often bring up in the meetings, in the briefings, the need to use the structures to counter any internal uprising. But this episode soon ended, because in 1966, the CIA started to realize that it was no longer necessary to rely just on these structures and in fact eased off the pressure in Italy and also in Germany and Belgium. General Gerardo Serraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. Mr. Stone added quite clearly that the financial support of the CIA was wholly dependent on our willingness to put into action, to program and to plan these other, shall we call them, internal measures. I said that this was not in the orders for stay behinds, nor had it been foreseen by Gladio when the original discussions took place. General Paolo Inzarelli, commander of Gladio, 1974-1986. As for the question of how much the Carabinieri knew, and in particular the Carabinieri stationed in the northeast, where Gladio had its greatest presence, I have to say that they knew virtually everything. Arms were kept in the Carabinieri headquarters and the army barracks. The system that they used was to collect these arms with a 1,000 lira note torn enough. 
Kung na bangkanota da the collector would carry one half and the command of the barracks the other. Metà della quale invece era in possesso del comandante della caserma. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. Una parte dei depositi erano nelle loro caserme. Part of the arms deposits were in the barracks. Knowing how the Carabinieri work, it is inconceivable that the central command wouldn't be informed. Vincenzo Vinciguera. When the Pateno attack occurred, in spite of it being an attack against the Carabinieri, where three Carabinieri died, they decided it was more convenient for them to cover it up than to act against the person responsible. The motive was, above all, political. And even today they hide behind the excuse of national security. Ah, national security, an immortality symbol, the people of the world, programmed from birth to exhibit loyalty to a few square inches of cloth, a particular set of dividing and conquering designs. Do we, the people of the world, do we have what it takes to overcome this divide and conquer program, to realize that we are all one, that none of us benefits from harm to any of us? I think we do, and time will tell. I think the people of the world are increasingly frustrated with this never-ending cycle of violence which is being dished out by the international corporate-backed deep state. This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Just like